the United States is one of the stingiest nations. It's the wealthiest country and the stingiest nation relative to its European counterparts because of race, because of white supremacists' concerns and fears about empowering non-Europeans with the same resources. Khalil Gibran Mohammed looks at how race, democracy, inequality, and criminal justice intersect in modern U.S. history. Before teaching at Harvard Kennedy School, he led the Schomburg Center in Harlem, one of the world's leading libraries on global black history. His book, The Condemnation of Blackness, was called a brilliant work that tells us how directly the past has formed us by the New York Review of Books. Today on The Dive, in conversation with Paloma Strellis, he discusses what's behind calls to defund the police, systemic racism, and the urgent need for criminal justice reform in the U.S. There has been an outpouring of public support for Black Lives Matter and against police brutality and um, discrimination. What do you think the importance of this moment will be? I think in the end, we'll look back whether it's a couple of years from now or a decade and certainly over the generations and see the largest mass demonstrations for racial justice that um, occurred in uh, 50 years going back to the 1960s. But depending on what comes of this moment and depending on how long people continue to protest could be the largest mass demonstrations around racial justice in history in the United States. And with the outpouring of support, do you, how accurate do you think the picture is that the left supports Black Lives Matter and criminal justice reform and the right is against the movement and reform? Well, it, it depends on, I mean, when we open it up to criminal justice reform, things get more complicated because there is absolutely support from the mainline right or Republican Party um, think tanks and, and traditional conservative organizations, some of which are libertarian uh, in their outlook, have been very much committed to some degree of criminal justice reform. The federal legislation, the First Step Act, is evidence of the collaboration between Utah Senator Mike Lee and uh, Democratic Senator Cory Booker that was put together uh, during the Obama administration's second term, uh, I happened to testify, um, not testify, it's the wrong word, I happened to appear before congressional staffers um, to help in their research in preparation for that law. So I'd say that um, there is a very real left and right bipartisan agreement on a range of criminal justice reforms, mostly focused on sending too many people, cutting back on the number of people who go to prison, cutting back on the amount of time they stay in prison, and supporting other alternative means around nonviolent um, and non-sex related crimes such as drug addiction itself. Otherwise, policing, um, there hasn't been a significant uh, support um, and it has neither been partisan, <laughs> bipartisan or partisan. I mean, the Obama administration was dragged into significant conversations around policing and I think that's important to remember. Um, it wasn't something they led, they didn't come into office with this as an agenda. Uh, and uh, there was no support within the Republican Party uh, that was demonstrable, certainly that I recognize, uh, for any significant police reform. At the grassroots level, surely some local state Republican 
elected officials have supported various efforts at police re reform, training, body cameras. Um, but that's a much harder um, goal to achieve in terms of the way American politics works. Right. And so if we kind of, that's quite a different picture from where we are here today when there are so many questions and conversations about what criminal justice reform could look like. Um, and as a base, like what are the critical changes needed to make sure that police killings such as those of kind of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor are not repeated? Well, I think the question is, um, is itself a narrowing of the problem. So uh, to answer the specific question about the use of excessive and lethal force for people clearly unarmed and with no apparent threat, someone in bed um, and someone here handcuffed, uh, those instances, the, the most obvious uh, mechanism, twofold, uh, aggressive criminal prosecution of criminal behavior when police officers break the law, that is kill people uh, that there's no legal justification for. Secondarily, that when officers on the scene are participating either actively or passively in the arrest itself that leads to death, um, could be subjected not only to criminal law, but existing statutes around felony murder, which have been very aggressively used to prosecute people uh, in this country uh, who are participating in some kind of crime, ex say for example, the driver of a car of someone who's about to rob someone and the driver of the car gets convicted for felony murder because the victim ends up dead and that person ends up serving 20 years in jail and they did never touch the person. So this country has been quite willing to extend the punitive reach of punishment to people who technically had nothing, like no immediate cause of death uh, but we can't even prosecute the police officer or in, in too many instances are have a hard time prosecuting police officers when they are both directly involved in a death and um, for those who bear witness or participate in the act of, in, in the collective moment itself. And who does have the power to make those changes that can hold the police accountable for their actions? Well, those, those rules start with municipal and state law. So the municipalities establish the policies and procedures that govern police officers. Some of that is a dance also between state law, depending on um, how the sausage is made legislatively. Uh, but the state can also establish uh, protocols uh, based on state law because the state ultimately, through the prosecutor system, uh, is responsible for prosecuting crimes. Um, the, the, the state supersedes the municipality in terms of uh, criminal offenses as opposed to uh, civil or um, summonses and misdemeanor uh, lower court offenses. And then um, the federal government has almost no role to play in the adjudication of most uh, police acts that could be deemed or um, defined as unlawful, which means in the end that the only role for the federal government is a budgetary one um, or one that expands the reach of um, civil rights jurisdiction in cases where they can be much more aggressive in establishing that racism is a motivating factor in police behavior. That's why we ended up with something like 70 consent uh, pattern and practice investigations um, going back to the 1990s.
So you kind of talk about the limits of uh, federal power, but um, obviously the Democrats have been putting forward a police reform bill. Do you, do you feel this is a kind of a step forward? Um, like, does it go far enough or is it just too inherently limited? Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's inher inherently limited uh, because, again, most of their um, actual power to control what happens at the local level is um, protected by federalism. In other words, they just they don't have jurisdiction. Uh, and so as such, even the reform bills that we're looking at now um, are ways to both establish uh, data transparency on uses of force which is something that the federal government has required um, in other instances, particularly arrest data, the uniform crime reports collect all the agencies uh, essential quarterly data on crime. So there's a, a, a precedent for the federal government requesting and or demanding that uh, police agencies report their activity. And so that's one thing that they're trying to do. Uh, the other is to, to establish an accreditation system for police agencies that have met, met certain training and reform benchmarks. And so that's kind of a, a stick approach, which is to say, if, you don't, if you're not nationally accredited, people should beware and that when things happen, it will add more evidence that this is a problematic police agency. Uh, which, of course, can create a political problem for a politician who is trying to defend the police, but the federal government hasn't accredited the department. Mm -hmm. So, so those are, those are uh, positive things. Um, but by and large, their biggest um, stick is to pull funding from local law enforcement agencies through various block grants and other incentive programs that have long been in place. And that's not a minor thing because uh, through... Uh, through the extension of military-grade equipment, through direct funding for various programs uh, that uh, community-oriented policing, the COPS service, for example, hasn't been involved in for years. Much of the infrastructure of policing today is a direct consequence going back to 1965 with the passage of the Law Enforcement Assistance Act, the LEAA Act, uh, which was really a major breakthrough under the Johnson administration in taking federal money and directly distributing it to local police agencies. Again, that's a, that was a surprise and a breakthrough precisely because the federal government didn't have jurisdiction. So why would they all of a sudden be funding local police departments? During the past two weeks of protests over the death of George Floyd, uh, we've been hearing and seeing more and more of the slogan, defund the police. Tonight, with a mounting national chorus decrying police brutality against black Americans, there's a new call for deep structural reform of policing across the country. Many are now demanding departments be defunded, dismantled, or outright abolished. Militarization uh, is really resonant because so evidently, like people have been sort of so shocked by the images of uh, of the highly militarized police, both against individuals and also in like in the context of protests. And that seems to be one of the um, one of the many factors that have led to uh, the current call being led by Black Lives Matter to defund the police. Um, but what does it actually mean? Yeah. So. Defund can mean, um, first of all, it's important to start by saying defund 
is a process and an outcome. So as a, something that has become a cry for a fundamental um, starting over, rebuilding, um, getting rid of the existing system itself as we currently know it, the process of defund essentially says, if we zeroed out the police budget, what would we put back in it? Um, what are the list of things that we would agree upon as a community? Again, these 18,000 police agencies are working within you know, small to very large cities. So um, the conversation about how the citizens and residents of those communities want to be policed um, is at the heart of a democratic society. The, the notion that police could define for themselves what, what people deserve or don't deserve is not, <laughs> is not the best of what our democracy argues for. So you start with that idea and you reduce or you rebuild the budget, to put it that way, um, based on the core functions that everyone agrees the police should be doing. So the calls for service for nuisance calls, things like loud noise, uh, things like you know, kids hanging out, um, what has often been used as a loitering complaint um, can also extend or has extended to gang ordinance rules where three black men standing on a corner can be presumptively uh, defined as a potential gang and then the police can literally come and interrogate them lawfully. Yeah. So, so the range of nuisance calls from loitering to noise uh, to, uh, you know, walking a dog um, unleashed. I mean, of course, the Amy Cooper case uh, takes that in reverse with Chris Cooper not using the police to try to solve a problem, but to say, hey, look, you shouldn't um, have your dog unleashed in Central Park. But those are the kinds of things that police officers have been responding to. Uh, in my own local community, uh, there's a lot of ferment around defund, and the police recently talked about the fact that they also get calls from elderly residents of this suburban community in South Orange to, in some cases, take them grocery shopping. So um, not only can you imagine like, well, what could go wrong with that? But it also shows you the range of discretionary choice. And so does everybody get to go and take a trip to the grocery store with the police? Okay, you get the point. So nuisance calls on one end, wellness checks on another, mental health calls for someone who is in crisis. These are three areas that are so crystal clear in terms of being problematic. The use of police officers in school as, as uh, school resource officers uh, exploded in the 1980s. A lot of that was federally funded, um, uh, to be clear. Uh, so the idea that the ratio of social workers or guidance counselors to address kids who, who have concerns, who are being bullied, who are dealing with trauma at home or in the neighborhood, has to be simply resolved by the, a police presence is now being completely discredited, um, as is the case in Minneapolis, where the uh, um, school district decided they would not renew a contract. So that's where the defund conversation is beginning in a lot of places. What don't we want them to do? What do we want them to do? And then what does the budget look like to support the things that we agree they should be doing? Right. And so I think this is um, an interesting point of clarity about the call, which is I think when lots of people first heard defund the police, it sounded like such an, a clear statement. And then I think people kind of Googling for checklists is what it meant. But I think what you're saying is 
that's exactly the point is no definitive checklist. It's about a process and a set of conversations. That's right. Yeah, these kinds of precisely because of how decentralized the system is, there cannot be a uniform prescriptive set of here is exactly what every police agency should be and should be doing. Precisely because, I mean, one way, this is very counterintuitive. But one reason why policing has gone so off the rails in terms of the impact to black people is that when broken windows was put into place, it was articulated through a logic that essentially said everyone will be subject to the same procedures focused on low level offenses as a way of preventing uh, more violent crime. And the idea was that these officers were essentially all doing the same thing. They were all robots um, focused on the low-level offenses, not the perpetrators. And so people like Bill Bratton, who two-time mayor of New York City, biggest police force in the country, one-time mayor of the LAPD, served in three other departments, including Boston. He was a very vigorous defender of this, not because he thought it was racial profiling, but because he thought by focusing on low-level crime, no matter who was doing it, it was the kind of crime prevention that could keep bad things from happening, which in the end might benefit um, low-income residents of quote-unquote high crime areas, which happen to be over-indexed uh, for African-Americans or uh, Latinos in places like New York or, or LA. But the problem is, of course, that you created a system that could not respond to the particular needs of those communities. And so when a community said, well, hey, wait a minute, you know, not only does our community not want everyone to be treated like they are a presumptive suspect, this particular community is not like that one around the corner where at the aggregate level, they might look the same, but the, the, but the actual members of those communities weren't just the same people. So part of what defund does as a process is it argues that 18,000 agencies ought to be having 18,000 conversations with their local constituents and their political leadership to determine precisely what the future of policing in that community should be. Right, We've, um, you've, you've broken down um, the concepts of behind the fund the police, um, but there's also been a lot of conversation about abolishing the police or dismantling the police. How did those ideas or arguments differ? So um, the the thing about defund the police, it is new. Um, it is new in this moment. It is something that uh, movement leaders have uh, developed behind the scenes, but didn't deploy in the way that has occurred in this moment. Um, abolish police abolition has been around for decades um, and is the cousin to uh, a much more vigorous uh, set of movement uh, uh, ideas as well as activist energy around prison abolition. And that work in many ways goes back to the work of Angela Davis and the uh, radical geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, the issue of prison abolition, which is informing police abolition, the core idea essentially is that uh, prisons grew in the last half of the 20th century as a way to solve two problems. One, the redundancy of labor problem, that there were uh, too many people and not enough jobs. Uh, and so a way of sorting people so that 
you could maintain a stranglehold over workers by cherry picking the ones that were most suitable for what capitalists needed. On the other side, the growth of prisons solved a land use problem. So to the extent that there was undeveloped land, that land could be converted to productive purposes and then put to work political constituents, that is a degree of white workers um, who had been displaced by, um, by the diminution or the disappearance of manufacturing work. So, you know, America's white working classes which of course in the United States has always been part of a solution of beating back anti-capitalist efforts or socialist movements. Because as long as those workers could be met with some degree of accommodation, uh, they would not overthrow the system. Uh, police abolition is informed by those ideas because police abolition then says, what are the alternatives that we should be fighting for that don't include building prisons and uh, maintaining a stranglehold over the precarious lives of working class people. And in that sense, police abolition basically says police officers are the front line workers of a prison system, of a carceral state. They feed the system. They are the ones regulating the bodies of essential workers. The abolition argument also then says for police, so that is not simply feeding a carceral state or a capitalist uh, domination over people. So we should have massive investments in the public goods that people draw upon in order to have dignified lives. People should have guaranteed incomes. People should have universal health care. Uh, people should have the ability to contribute their productive capacity to an economy that is environmentally sound and stable. Um, so once you open up the conversation about police abolition, you are essentially um, on um, a spectrum of ideas that see abolition not as the uh, eradication of these institutions of punishment in the pure sense. That's just like, that's like, you know, of course we shouldn't have these things, but what should we have in their place? And so within the kind of broader conversations, I think, um, I think some people, uh, it, it, see, it seems like on the surface, like such a radical idea. And I think people have a lot of questions, but people also kind of thinking a lot and reading a lot, hopefully. Um, I think one question that people seem to have is like, how would a system without police deal with violent crime? Is there, are there answers for that? Sure, absolutely. First of all, uh, the, the scale of police operations in, New York, in, in, in the United States of America are unrivaled anywhere in the world. So it's not an accident uh, that we have the most punitive and the largest system of incarceration. Conservatives have often thought like, oh my God, how much worse would it be if we didn't have these, this gigantic system of punishment? Um, when academics, for the most part, argue that there's no there's no demonstrable empirical relationship between how gigantic our system of punishment is and the actual criminal offending that happens in that. It's counterintuitive to the average person, uh, but all you have to do is look around the rest of the world. So in the rest of the world, they don't have you know, huge police states. And guess what? Those societies don't crumble um, and mm -hmm. go up in a ball of flames. So 
And that's true not just in the global south, as we might think. Uh, it's also true in uh, Western liberal European democracies uh, that simply don't invest in the kind of punitive state violence and punishment that the United States does. So you asked the question. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just sort of wanted to build on what you're saying and, and kind of try to understand more what is so particular about the U.S. case. And I thought it might be useful to kind of look back and wanted to ask you to describe what the kind of history of policing is in the U.S. from its origins. Sure. So, so why would the United States be so different relative to the nations that are uh, liberal democracies and share... Uh, the same enlightenment foundations of their society. Um, the biggest difference, of course, is that this is a settler colonial society, meaning that uh, in the 17th century, Europeans, uh, really in the 16th century first, but certainly by the time of the British presence in North America, uh, colonists came here with the intent of staying. Uh, they didn't come here uh, as adventurers to establish uh, economic, um, domination over the natural resources and the indigenous populations for the purposes of extracting and bringing back to, uh, to their homelands. In fact, um, that history of settler colonialism is a history of the instrumental use of violence to both tame the land, the indigenous populations on that land, and then to control uh, the enslaved population of Africans who, who were here from the very beginning uh, as a way of building wealth and creating wealth. So there's no way to understand uh, the uniqueness of the United States, its origin story, without recognizing for 200 years before the United States was born as an independent nation separate from uh, Britain, that it had this history and that the use of violence to control um, a very inegalitarian um, set of 13 colonies uh, was baked into the foundation of this country. Right. And looking even to the 20th century, when we compare, when we compare the provision of social welfare uh, per citizen, a kind of per capita analysis, the United States is one of the stingiest nations. It's the wealthiest country and the stingiest nation relative to its European counterparts. And the answer that my own colleague Ed Glaze, the economist at HKS says is because of race, because of white supremacists' concerns and fears about empowering non-Europeans with the same resources. And so that has created a net negative effect um, that also affects low income to working class white people because they also would benefit from a healthier social safety system. And this seems to link directly into what you've described as a historic condemnation of blackness. Um, but what does that really mean and how does it connect with how black communities have been policed? Yeah, so, um, so if we think about what that violence looked like, the largest form of state bureaucracy in the South uh, was the mandatory deputization of white men to serve as slave patrollers uh, to uh, ensure that African-Americans uh, would not free themselves, uh, would not rebel or cause insurrection, um, uh, would not plot murder and mayhem uh, against their white uh, slave owners. 
Uh, that system was in place for the entire colonial period through the antebellum period. It became much more violent in the antebellum period. That is, it went from being um, less violent before the nation was founded to, in the 19th century, more violent, precisely because African Americans grew in number uh, and uh, in some places at the county level were the majority population. That history carried over into the period after slavery uh, because particularly in the South where 90% of the black population remained until really the beginning of the 20th century, um, the South tried despite the end of slavery, despite the abolition of slavery to reinscribe um, black people as, um, as neo-slaves essentially. Uh, people whose freedoms would be circumscribed and only defined at a bare minimum for the purposes of putting them back to work just as they had been before. How did that happen? How did they pull it off? What were they trying to achieve? They effectively were trying to use the instrument of the law, of criminal law, in order to define black people as a dangerous criminal class, and therefore anything that could be perceived or defined as criminal activity um, would immediately lead to um, a, a form of, uh, of, of, of state-controlled labor. Now, as a practical matter, the point of this period of what I call mass criminalization using the threat of police or punishment was meant to be coercive, was meant to be a way of saying, you know, if you don't agree to these unfair labor terms, uh, if you don't agree to stay put on this plantation, even though you're free, where you don't get to come and go as you please, then I'm going to call the sheriff and you know what's going to happen. The point was never to get to mass incarceration. That is black people just simply in an incarcerated facility uh, being less productive. The point was to get them back to their old plantations with the threat of punishment. And that produced both the logic of what I've called the condemnation of blackness, but it also produced the evidence. And that evidence was the statistical production of black people as criminals because of all that arrest activity and all of that unfair racist punishment in the South eventually was tracked in census data. So as early as one generation after slavery by 1890, the black population of the United States was 12%, but represented 30% of the nation's prisoners. And from Southerners to Northerners, from racist conservatives to uh, self-defined liberals and progressives in the North, that number, that statistical disproportion, what we call that racial disparity became um, a unifying fact that black people did in fact have a crime problem. It was not understood in the way that we might recognize today as evidence of systemic racism and discrimination. And the foundation upon which that fact moved into society was through social science, was through journalism, was through political elites, through the population, and it is still with us. It is still a fundamental part of the debate, the conversation, the, pol the political work, the policy making uh, that drives our understanding in the 21st century. Christian Cooper is a Harvard graduate, a pioneering comic book writer, and a biomedical editor 
for health science communications. But a lot of America was introduced to him this week as a black man who asked a woman in New York Central Park to leash her dog while he was trying to bird watch. And it was met with this response. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording. Please, please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. And I'm taking pictures calling the cops. Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm gonna tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. There is an African-American man. I am in Central Park. He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. I'm being threatened by a man in the Rambo. Please send the cops immediately. But one of the things I want to say is people need to understand there are consequences to your actions. And one of the consequences to this woman's action is she could have gotten this young man killed. Right. And, you know, I think one thing that sort of struck me in what you just said was saying, you know, in the past, um, people on plantations would just say, I'll call the sheriff. But as we sort of, as you've already referenced with the kind of, Amy Cooper situation that's still happening today and like people have been so shocked by the images of George Floyd's killing and again you know this seems like a kind of a case of kind of obscenely disproportionate uh, force by the police like a shopkeeper accused him of using a $20 bill and there and he ends up uh, being killed and so like has there been an escalation in use of force by the police or has this just always been the status quo no one knows i mean no one no one knows whether there's been an escalation in the use of force relative to some point in the past precisely because this the state both at the state level and the federal level have not been keeping track of uses of force one of the um one of the reforms that came out of the uh, first stage of the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the Ferguson uprising uh, was the call for uh, publicly available uh, data on uses of force. So in, this, in my home state where I live in New Jersey, uh, due to a, a state judge um, essentially uh, mandating that all police agencies in New Jersey not only track uh, by their by universal standard their uses of force, but also report in a way that is publicly available. That was rolled out about a year ago. And so now every town in New Jersey can go to a website and it can look up um, what are the uses of force and what are the racial uh, statistics that show whether or not there are racial disparities. That is a game changer, uh, precisely because local constituents and communities can go back to uh, elected officials and the police agencies and say, you know, here's the data. In my town in particular, black people are um, eight times more likely to have force used on them by the police. And so there are conversations for reform happening. One just had a three hour meeting uh, just last night that my wife is part of, because she's on a special committee to work on this. So that kind of use of force data is a function a direct consequence of movement work and organizing to increase data transparency. But we don't have any longitudinal database to go back to. Um, and the, the best evidence to get at essentially that the problem has been a consistent problem that wasn't subject to video surveillance or, or, or citizen surveillance uh, are these Blue Ribbon Commission reports and a pattern and practice investigations. The Blue Ribbon Commission reports go back to the 1920s in Chicago, 
Um, there are several on New York. Uh, the Kerner Commission is one itself in the 1960s. And then these pattern and practice investigations have been going on since the 1990s. And again, there's something like 70 of them. So if you look inside of those reports, what you see is not just the single story of the killing of a George Floyd uh, or someone like him. What you see is hundreds and hundreds um, I mean, I haven't quantified them, but most certainly hundreds and hundreds of stories of people who's, who've been systematically abused by the police, have had their civil liberties disrespected. And in each of these reports, it's not just the story of the victims. It is the story of criminal justice officials, white men saying, yes, this is what we've been doing and maybe we shouldn't be doing it. But it goes back to the 1920s. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's um, been talked about as this kind of Groundhog Day scenario of... Uh, kind of the cycle of revelation and uh, recommendation and yet no meaningful action. Um, so I think it is useful maybe to, um, to sort of focus on the way forward and kind of think about how does the policing system and the use of force in the US compare with the police in other, other countries? You've referenced that a little already, but what I'm wondering about is are there models out there which the US could be learning from? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't study uh, police agencies in, in, up close. What I can say is that um, what is clear is that the amount of money that the United States invests in policing as opposed to other public goods is way out of balance with how other nations think about the relationship of crime and punishment. Um, a lot of criminal justice reformers, uh, both Republicans and Democrats in this country, have been looking at Germany and Scandinavian countries in particular, particularly at the prison level. Um, and the most, some of the most striking differences are that um, prison officials in those countries take seriously that if someone has broken the social contract, then they need to figure out why, and they need to establish some expectation that in the process of finding out why, we're gonna, our job is partly to convince you that the social contract works for everybody. In the United States, the punitive culture of our punishment system is, is in fact a source of constantly breaking the social contract, a source of, of this literally treating people like you are a subspecies of humanity that doesn't deserve any rights. Um, the most obvious in a democracy, of course, is stripping people of their right to vote. That is not true in many other countries. Just because you are incarcerated doesn't mean you lose your right to vote. Um, but in the United States, it's not just that it happens when you're in prison. You come out from prison, and many states have, have maintained the fact that felons, um, people convicted of felons, don't, get, don't immediately get their right back to vote. Where did all that come from in the United States, which may explain or should explain why it's different in, in other countries? It comes from the end of slavery when the South decided, oh, the way that we'll get around the right for black men to vote in the 15th Amendment is we'll find, we'll pass these felony disenfranchisement laws because we are already using the criminal justice system to keep them all in line and, and going back to work. And now we'll take away their right to vote for those uh, who are not convicted of anything, but I'm sorry, for those who um, are still trying to use the power of the ballot to change the rules in our society. So. Where, where policing is concerned, in the UK, one of the things we know, just as a matter of uh, common knowledge and evidence, is that many UK officers aren't armed. Um, they engage most suspects um, with no expectation that they, they could actually shoot the person. Um, of course, the UK is also a place where there's far lower rates of gun ownership. 
So we have another problem that our political culture is defined by uh, a powerful lobbying group in the National Rifle Association that engages in racist um, fear mongering of white citizens and black citizens uh, to be armed and ready because if, if something happens to the police, um, uh, Mexicans and black people are gonna come and rape your daughter and kill you. Uh, and this is not an exaggeration in terms of people like Wayne LaPierre uh, who have been on the record uh, with such um, uh, kinds of speech. So there's a lot of differences that explain why things are the way they are here and why they are the way they are, but they come down to white supremacy um, at the end of the day. And so building on that, if we're sort of, if we are to try to make a path forward, um, the ideas around defund, and in fact, the ideas around this abolish and dismantle as well, all kind of rest on the idea that reductions in policing will lead in fact to an increase in public safety. Um, so how do you think that's best understood? And in order for it to be successful, what do you think um, it's contingent on? Okay, so there's, uh, so let me ask this, answer this question as straightforward as I can. Um, the best evidence that exists for how to increase public safety in communities where violence is a problem is not more police, but in fact, public health approaches. And this goes under many names, but violence interrupters is the term for this class of community-based workers. These are people who don't come out of public health training. They come from the community and then are trained um, by organizations like Cure Violence Global, which both works in the United States, has been doing so for 20 years, but also works in many other countries, including in Central America, places like Honduras. Um, I am on the board of Cure Violence, uh, but only as of a couple of years ago. But for years, I've been part of conversations uh, in New York City, for example, I served on a gun violence task force where several uh, individuals from the community were part of the Cure Violence Network. So Cure Violence delivers technical assistance and training to community workers who use uh, established conflict resolution techniques um, based on epidemiological approaches. So let me, let me put that in as plain a language as possible. The assumption is that violence is contagious, just like COVID-19. So when people are exposed to violence, there's a good likelihood that they will become violent themselves. And so because violence is also is contagious, the assumption is that it's also dose dependent. So the more violence someone is exposed to, the more likely they are to become violent at some point in the future. As a practical matter, what that means is you take an epidemiological approach to keep a virus or violence in this case from spreading, you try to contain that individual. How does the containment happen? It happens based on a conversation. So someone commits an act of violence, you know, there's a fight on the basketball court, uh, someone has disrespected someone's girlfriend, um, you know, there could be real beef over the underground economy, which is a very real thing, both in the United States and all over the world. Uh, and the question is like, when there is a disagreement, what happens next? Well, uh, sometimes it's resolved by violence, but other times when violence interrupters are working in a community, they come in and they talk to everyone. They're considered credible messengers. 
people trust them, they rely upon them. And the truth is, despite the racist ideas that circulate in America, nobody wants to die. <laughs> like the vast majority of people who are victims of violence and even those who perpetrate violence are actually not interested in dying. But as Ta-Nehisi Coates has written in Between the World and Me, when you know the police aren't there to save you and actually might kill you, what else are you supposed to do but be prepared to defend yourself? And the logic of that, while it is often understood through racist notions and ideologies, is exactly the same logic that motivates rural white Americans who are armed to the teeth, who not only believe the same thing, that if someone threatened me, threatens me, I have a right to kill them, i.e. the castle doctrine or stand your ground laws, uh, but also they live in places where they can't actually count on the police because there's so few of them and it might take them 30 minutes if there's a home invasion. So black people are acting under the same human conditions of the need for personal safety, which means I'm threatened by someone, I can't count on the police, so I might shoot them first. So violence interrupters know all of this, they get in there and they work with people. And in many parts of the country where they have worked, there hasn't been a shooting in years. Uh, and I have talked to those, the programs have been evaluated. Um, just one more point on this, the police sometimes work with these interrupters. Other times there's an ambivalent relationship to the interrupters. And oftentimes they try to say, well, you know, they, that's not the right way to do things. Um, there's a lot of lawlessness. Some of these interrupters themselves have rap sheets. These are like criminals helping criminals. We don't like it. But the truth is that police officers in many cases, in many of these same communities, only clear 50% of the homicides, which means someone is dead and they have at best a 50% rate, a failing rate, I think it should be noted, um, of finding the person who did the, the killing. Now they'll say that's because the community doesn't cooperate. Well, of course the community doesn't cooperate because you're stopping and frisking um, a good chunk of the community, particularly the community that should be cooperating. So, so you can't fix that cycle. It can't be fixed. What can be fixed is investing in this public health approach that actually works. I mean, that seems like a really powerful model. And I've also never heard the analogy before between violence as a public health issue. And that seems really striking. And like from Minneapolis to LA, we've seen elected officials saying they're going to take action to overhaul their police systems. And for those in authority seeking to make it right on this issue, you know, what mistakes have been made in the past and what advice, more importantly, do you have for them today? I think that um, the, the best advice I could give is that uh, as long as people are protesting and in the streets, political leadership will be incredibly responsible. Um, in the past, uh, once the protest go, protesters go home uh, and the movement leaders start uh, petitioning and writing notes, those people often get ignored because then they look like the crazy people in the community that don't represent the quote unquote real community. If that happens again, it's not likely to happen in Minneapolis, but it, it can happen in, in many other cities, then police and elected officials will, be, have, will make the exact same mistake that every one of their predecessors has made before, which is to say, we're gonna solve this on our own. We're gonna negotiate the deals without the input from the community and particularly the part of the community that makes us most uncomfortable but in fact is the one that is most likely to get you to where you ostensibly want to go. By catering to the traditional uh, faith-based part of the community, 
uh, community that you know may be more aligned with the legacy civil rights organizations like the NAC, NAACP, the National Urban League, would be a huge mistake in this moment. Not because in the past those organizations haven't come up with good ideas, but because for now nearly a decade since Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012 by George Zimmerman, we have seen an explosion of a new generation of activists with a far more sophisticated understanding of the dynamics at play. And if these elected officials choose not to listen to them, they're gonna find themselves one, voted out of office by these constituents, but they're also gonna find that their cities are gonna to continue uh, to experience gigantic displays of civil disobedience. And so lastly, for the very many people currently attending these rallies and advocating for sustained change, what is your message for them? To, to stay in the streets. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, short of COVID-19 um, and the demands of public you know, health that we all want um, for the, the, the greater good of our society, um, to break with history would be to maintain as much uh, people power pressure on elected officials at this time. And there, there's just nothing quite like it. Brilliant. Thanks so much. It's just been, it's been really brilliant to talk with you today and really appreciate your kind of contributions and perspective. I appreciate it. Yeah, you had great questions. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on The Dive. This episode was brought to you by Zoya Soroy, Paloma Strelitz and Judd Olenoff. If you have any comments, ideas or just want to say hi, write to us at ideas at thedive.media.